We are in John chapter 13. John chapter 13, if you could stand with me, um, it would be our great pr- uh, privilege and pleasure to read this text. And we will read through verse 20. And follow along with me now. John chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son son of Simon, to betray him, and Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and was going back to God, got up. From supper, and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus said to him, If I do not wash you, you have no part in me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean, and you are cleaned, but not all of you. For he knew the one who, would, who was betraying him, and for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I them The Lord and teacher wash your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that that you also should do as I did. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you, I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives me, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. And you can be seated. This is for us Lord's Supper Sunday. And if you've been with us for a while, then you kind of know where we are in the narrative. This is an important place because Jesus has ceased his public ministry. And now he is ministering exclusively to his disciples. And it's at this point that... John takes a a leap forward. He does what the synoptic synoptic gospels don't do, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us some other things that took place during Passover week. And John just skips all of that. You remember when they were leaving the temple area and one of the disciples said, Lord, look at these fabulous buildings and these great stones. And Jesus has that eschatological conversation with them. And there are some other things that take place there. And, and John, however, understands, he believes that you've read all of that already. He wants to show you something that the other apostles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, left out. Namely, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. The message of this passage is very clear. Being a follower of Jesus means not only believing what he says, but also serving like he serves. Being a follower of Christ means not only believing what he says, although that is of paramount importance, but it also means that we serve like he serves. Jesus' public ministry, as I said, is over. He has nothing more to say to the crowds. He's taught them everything he came to teach, and aside from a few words spoken to those who arrest him and those who, in, who will interrogate him this very night, he really has nothing more to say to anyone outside of his disciples. This text has been known historically as part of the farewell discourse of Jesus. He is actually saying goodbye to his disciples. From here on, everything changes. He will be killed, and he will rise again. He will be raised in his glorious body and his glorified body, and then he will stay with them for 40 days and ascend back into heaven. So everything Jesus says now strikes us with the added import of being his final words. I mean, think about that. If you knew that you were going to be arrested this very night and on the next day killed, but you have a few hours now to gather your family around you and say some things. What would you say? Would you talk about the lunch that you had last Sunday? Would you talk about the homework your kids did that week? What would you say? What would you talk about? You would talk about the things that matter most, the most important message for them to hear. Maybe Maybe it's something that you wish you'd always said to them or made more clear than you ever have before, and now you're going to do it. You are going to be very careful about your last words because they will ring in your family's ears, or in this case, in the disciples' ears, the ears of their mind, for the rest of their lives. This is important. As we work our way through this, the first thing I want us to see is the paradox of servanthood. There's a, kind of a paradox going here going on here, a juxtaposition, something we wouldn't expect. I mean, watch this. We need to be careful with what John says here about Jesus because he's being so specific. He's being so specific in his language that it kind of doesn't flow naturally. He's cramming a lot. I mean, these couple of verses are freighted with meaning that we're only going to have opportunity to touch on. But verses 1 through 4... Let's just look at the beginning here. Now, before the feast of the Passover. Now, understand the feast of the Passover. Sometimes when it says the feast of the Passover, he's talking about the feast that lasted a week. It involves not only the Passover, but it involves the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's all kind of grouped together, this week-long festival called the Feast of Passover. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about a very specific part of the feast, and that is when you actually eat the meal. 
And we know that because he talks about supper twice. And that shouldn't make you think of lunch right now, so stop thinking of lunch. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I want you to see the motivation behind Jesus' actions here. He is about to wash his disciples' feet. And yet John here takes the time to remind us who he is. Who is Jesus? There are several important facts about Jesus that John wants us to bear in mind before we read about what he does. Let's talk first about the indicative, who Christ is. First, John says, notice that Jesus knew his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father. In other words, he knew that his ministry had come to a close. He knew that his assignment here on earth was almost over and that within a period of 24 hours, he would be home with his Father, finally home. His humiliation was about to come to an end. His glory was about to be restored. He who is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by his powerful word, is about to make purification for sins and then sit down with the majesty on high, at the right hand of majesty on high. It's all about to happen right now. This is who Jesus is. He belongs at the right hand of majesty on high. He is the Son of Man. That's not a reference to him being born of a man and woman. This is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man being presented to the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days gives to the Son of Man all the kingdoms of the earth that all the peoples of the earth might serve him. And now here we find Jesus, not being served, but serving. His humiliation had come to an end. Jesus knew that in just a few short hours, the joy set before him these past 33 years would become an eternal reality, never to be thwarted, never to be interrupted again. And soon he would regain his rightful place at the throne, listening to the six-winged seraphim, And the living creatures crying out like an awesome sound of a mighty waterfall, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. We saw in John last week that when Isaiah saw in in Isaiah chapter 6, he saw the glory of the king sitting in the temple and, and the train of his robe filled the temple and the threshold shook at the sound of those who were crying, holy, holy, holy. It was terrifying to the prophet Isaiah, and yet John says, Isaiah that day saw Christ. That was Jesus. It was the pre-incarnate Christ. It was the second person of the Trinity. This is the one who was with his disciples this evening. He had been on earth for 33 years, and oh, how he must have longed to go home. 
I've experienced that a few times. There was one time in particular when a number of us, many years ago, a good group of us from here at Calvary went down to the jungles of the Yucatan to do some ministry work for a week or so. And, and I remember after that grueling week of being there and not really being able to understand the, the people in the church with whom we were ministering and praying hourly. And it was, it was wonderful, and I'll never forget it, but it was exhausting. And I remember after coming out of the jungle, and we, they took us to our hotel, and they were going to you know, take us to dinner and take us snorkeling, and I didn't want to do any of that stuff. You know what I wanted to do? I wanted to go home. I don't want to go to the bazaar. I don't want to do shopping. You have to do shopping before you go home, but I don't want to do that. I just wanted to go home. And I remember we were walking into the entrance of this, of this um, restaurant. It was all open, outdoors kind of thing. And, and we were walking, and I was thinking about this. And I don't remember if I was speaking with Charlie or someone else as we were walking, and I said, this. I mean, all of us are talking about wanting to be home. This must have been what Jesus felt like. 33 years in, and he's ready to go. It's almost over. He's going back to his father. That's number one. Secondly, notice that he had loved and was continuing to love his disciples even to the end. Look at this. Now before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this, this world to the father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I've always thought that... Um, John was thinking of the terminating point right here, right here, but, but it wasn't. Here's John writing decades later, kind of filling in the gaps for the other gospel writers, and now he's got a distant view backwards, and he's saying Jesus never stopped loving these men. He never stopped loving us. Even at this moment when he knew there was someone at the table who was going to betray him and he would be arrested that very night, nevertheless, he never stopped loving them. He loved them to, in the Greek, it probably better translated, to the uttermost, to his fullest extent. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friend, and that's exactly what was happening here. He loved them by laying down his life. That's what love is. Love isn't a feeling that you feel when you feel like you've never felt anything like this before. That's not, that's not love. You know what love is? To love is to give. It's to give the other person what they need that you have because God wants you to. In John 3.16, if you read it in the Greek, here's what it says. In this manner, God loved the world. He gave his son, his only one. That's love. That's love. And that's what Jesus is doing to the very end, to the uttermost, to the fullest extremity of his human life. He loved them. He just kept giving, kept giving, kept giving. We say frequently around here, God is always the giver. And here's a picture of it right here. Jesus is still giving. 
This is a magnificent description of the relationship the thrice holy God and sinful mortal men have. He is the awesome and glorious, highly exalted one who sits on the eternal throne and makes earth his footstool. But oh, how he loves selfish, whining, truth-suppressing, Christ-belittling people whom he has made. He loves us. And to say that he loves us means that he is giving, he is serving. Yes, even giving to and serving us who are his enemies. That's what Paul says, right? In Ephesians chapter 2, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Beloved, this is amazing love. This is amazing love. And, but we can't really appreciate the love until we, until we understand something of the sacrifice and the need for it. We were desperately wicked. Unsavable, really. Apart from God. It's amazing. Sometimes, sometimes when I'm praying, the Lord reminds me. If I get all feel, feeling all haughty and proud, The Lord reminds me from time to time, the only way you could have been saved is for God to die in your place. Nothing less than that. That's how horrible sin and how great a sinner I am. Beloved, amazing love. You know, it's so easy to understand It's so easy, I'm sorry, to sing the songs when we talk about God's amazing love and never really realize the depth of it. How can it be? God loves us. God loves us. As you're taking the Lord's table this morning, may we pray, God, make that fresh for me today. Help me to see with the eyes of my heart how desperately I needed what Jesus alone could provide. And he did it. Did it. Third, notice verse 2. Jesus knew that the devil had already put it into Judas's heart to betray him. <laughs> Key words here, he knew. He knew he's sitting at the table. There's Judas right across the table. He knew what Judas was going to do. He was well aware that one of the twelve sitting there at the table was about to deliver him into the hands of evil men in order to put him to death. And and he didn't just know it was one of the twelve. He knew which one. He knew he was about to be murdered. And the one responsible for that was sitting within arm's reach. We know that because John leans up real close to Jesus and says, And Jesus says, the one that I dip this bread into the sauce and hand it to him, he's the one. He knew. Jesus knew that. And there he was, serving them anyway. Loving them even in the midst of that kind of betrayal. And fourth, 
Fourth is that Jesus knew his own authority and glory. Again, I'm wanting you to see the disconnect here. The darkness and the light, the juxtaposed truths here. That everything seems to be out of whack. Those who are unworthy of any honor are being honored. And the one who is most glorious to be honored is serving. He knew. Verse 3 says, the Father had given what? All things. The Father had given all things into his hands. This, beloved, is a declaration of his absolute sovereignty over all things. His kingly rule over all things, everything, life, death. Everything that we experience in this life, everything in between, Jesus is that sovereign God. And secondly, he also knew that he came forth from God and was going back to God. And this is a declaration of his eternal glory and deity. He had come from heaven as very God of very God. Or as John says in chapter 1, the Word. He is the Word made flesh. And he knew these things. He knew who he was. And John is setting us up. He's showing us the contrast, the stark contrast. He's putting Jesus' servanthood against, in, in very stark relief against his majesty and glory and sovereignty and authority. And these are all things Jesus was acutely aware of as he got up from the table that night. Now, with all of that in mind, if you had all that at your disposal, what would you do? You know there's a traitor in your midst. He's going to betray you that night. And you're getting ready to sit down to a meal with him. And you've got all of that authority, all of that power. What would you do? I've got one word. <laughs> Lightning. Out of the sky. Execute Judas on the spot or, or do a Nadab and Abihu thing or a Ananias and Sapphira thing or not Jesus. About have God speak in an audible voice out of the heavens, kind of through the roof. They are in the upper room. They're a little closer. And God could have spilled Judas's plan and told everybody who the traitor was. And Jesus could have called down a thousand angels to protect himself from the evil men who were soon on their way to arrest him. But no, no. What did he do? I mean, he wasn't wearing anything royal to begin with. Nothing, nothing important. His, his tunic or his robe or whatever he was wearing wasn't anything special. And yet he got up and he took that off. He got up from the table, he stripped down to his undergarments, he wrapped himself in a towel, he poured water in a common basin and then got on his knees on the dirty floor and began 
doing the most menial thing, almost, that a human being can do for another. He washed their feet and wiped their feet with a towel. It's amazing. Who is this king of glory? You say, well, how did he do that exactly? I mean, we're sitting around the table, we're sitting in chairs, we got our feet under the table, that seems awkward. That's not how they ate. I've been to Central Asia and have, have often sat on the floor and heard them say, if this were a thousand years ago, we wouldn't be sitting on the floor, we would be reclining next to one another. And men with men and women with women. And the way it works is you would lean to your left on your left elbow with pillows and mats and you would use your right hand to feed yourself and your feet kind of went backwards and the next guy was right next to you. So if I'm Jesus, John is right here. He's the one whom whom Jesus loved. That's how he called himself. The one whom Jesus loved, leaning against his breast. That's, what, that's how that happened. He could just lean backwards a little bit, and he, he was right in Jesus' face, which means their feet were outward, and it was easy. Jesus just walked around the table. Everybody's feet is poking out, and he goes around one at a time, dressed in nothing but a towel, begins washing their feet. I mean, this is, this is the job of the lowest slaves The lowest servant in the community was given this job. And if they weren't weren't wealthy enough to have a servant, then probably the wife would do it of the home or one of the children. He got up from the table, he stripped down, he took a towel, he wrapped himself with it and began washing their feet. This is a great paradox that the sovereign Lord and King of all things should be willing to make himself the lowest servant and to wash his disciples' feet. And before this evening, Jesus had taught his men many times about the essential posture of a faithful disciple, namely that of a humble servant. And he had even used himself as an example one time when the disciples were arguing about who was greatest. You remember, Jesus rebuked them and said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, notice the son of man motif again. If you don't understand who the son of man is and what was going on in Daniel chapter 7 when Daniel saw that vision of the ancient of days giving all the kingdoms of the people to the son of man, then you won't understand this verse. So understanding that now, chapter 10, verse 45, he says, for even the son of man, namely himself, did not come to be served, but to serve And to give his life a ransom for many. There it is again. To love is to give. And the ultimate expression of love is to give your life for others. Now he would teach that truth one final time through what we might call a living parable. This is the paradox of servanthood. Beginning with verse 5 then, we have the parable of servanthood. So one by one, Jesus moves from disciple to disciple, disciple, washing their feet and wiping it with his towel. Even Judas, think about this, even Judas, we assume, was tenderly and affectionately served by the hands of the one whom he would betray. And Jesus knew it when he did it. 
Peter sees the paradox here. This is the only wrinkle in the otherwise seamless story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Things are going along smoothly until he gets to Peter, as usual. He still doesn't understand the social economy of heaven, that the greatest in the kingdom are those who are the servants of all. And so he says to Jesus, verse 6, look at verse 6, Lord, do you wash my feet? In other words, Lord, I should be washing your feet. And this isn't right. I will never allow you to wash my feet. You are the master. We are your servants. But Jesus explains, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And here we get our first glimpse of the mind of Christ behind this living parable. Why is he doing this? Why is he doing this? Why is he humbling himself so low before them? So much so, this is an honor and shame culture, by the way, and, and, and Jesus was humbling himself so low, it was beyond shameful, which is why Peter took issue with it. And here's our first glimpse into the mind of Christ. The washing of the feet is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. That is, before a person can fellowship with Christ, he must be washed by him. He must be free from sin in a way that only Christ can free him. There must be a washing, or we might say an atoning for sin Washing their feet was the, not the means of cleansing the disciples from sin, but it was a symbol of the cleansing that Jesus would accomplish on the cross. That's why Jesus told Peter, you don't understand this now, but you will understand hereafter. Just be patient, Peter. Not your spiritual gift, but try. After the resurrection, this will be more clear. Of course, then Peter responds with his typical impulsivity. Then, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head, bathe me. You got to know, Jesus was just smiling at him. Peter, 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 Peter. And he explains that Peter still misunderstands. He misunderstands the meaning of what Jesus is doing. Those who have already been bathed need only to have their feet cleaned. You are already clean, Peter. All of you, save one. You are already clean. I take that to mean that they had already experienced regeneration. The price Jesus paid, the price that Jesus was about to pay on the cross for them, has already been credited to their account by grace through faith, as it was with all of the Old Testament saints, regenerated by the Holy Spirit who came and did something to their hearts, and they believed. And it was accounted to them, it was credited to them as faith, as far as God was concerned, they were already clean. Their faith, like Abraham's faith, had been accounted to them as righteousness. 
In other words, when a believer sins, he doesn't need to get saved over again. It's not about getting resaved and resaved and resaved. I believe Jesus was writing primarily to true believers in 1 John chapter 1 when he says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. This is that cleansing. It's that cleansing. By the way, that's the key, key word in, or key concept in this whole narrative. And I, and I don't remember the numbers. I didn't put it in my notes, but it goes like this. Wash, 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 cleanse, bathe. You see a common theme? All the way through here, it's about washing, 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 cleansing, bathing. This is about being clean. It's about being made clean. There's only one way to do that. You don't have that kind of righteousness. Your account is already stained. There is a righteousness, however, that you desperately need and don't have and cannot earn. You must get it from someone else. You must get it from another. But by grace through faith, they were already cleaned. They were already cleaned. They just needed their feet washed. He just needs to come and wash his feet from time to time. And, and that's what happens every time a believer humbly confesses sin. And by the way, that should be happening this morning. As, not only as we're looking at this, but certainly as we're taking the Lord's table, you should be praying, God, search me. Know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Not so that I can get saved all over again. I just want to be clean. I just want to be clean. Wash my feet. Make me clean over again. It's interesting, in the New Testament, Paul repeatedly says, cleanse yourselves, cleanse yourselves. We have a part in this. Our part is humility. Our part is coming to the Savior again and again, not to be regenerated anew, but rather to be cleansed, to be washed so Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart. I don't know about you, but every day I need my feet washed. I need my heart cleaned again. And seen in this light, we understand when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he was putting on display what appeared to be an extreme posture of humility, but which in fact was merely a vague shadow of the ultimate hum humility that he would soon and willingly submit to on their behalf. It's as if Jesus could have said, you think that what I'm doing tonight is extremely unrealistic in its humility? Wait till you, wait till you see what I do for you tomorrow. You think this is shame? Wait till tomorrow. This is not the fullest extent of my love. This kind of humility, a humility that none of the rest of you would ever conscience in your mind to let me do, let alone you do. It's nothing compared to how I will humble your, myself for your sake tomorrow. You will understand hereafter. This is the humility of Christ and the humiliation of Christ for our good. In this case, the greatest of all really is the servant of all. Jesus really was the greatest of all men. 
and here he is the servant of all men. But Jesus doesn't leave them to discover the application of the parable on their own. He explains it in direct terms. So we go from the paradox of servanthood to the parable of servanthood and finally the path of servanthood. Starting in verse 12, and I won't reread it again. Just follow along. Jesus is saying, listen to me. You guys need to get this before I go. You need to learn this. You need to learn this. You think you're so great. You think you're so talented, so smart, so gifted. You think you're better than those around you. I frequently hear you arguing about which one of you will be greatest in the kingdom, which has the best ideas, which has superior ability. You exclude people and rebuke people because they're not a part of our little group. You elevate yourselves and suppress everyone else. But let's put this in perspective. You ready? I am your teacher. You are my students. Students are never greater than their teacher, are they? And slaves are not greater than their master, are they? Now, if I, your master, am willing to perform the most insignificant duties on behalf of the most insignificant people, what ought you to do? Serve one another. Sacrifice for one another. Give to one another. Don't hold yourself aloof. Get involved. Become the servant. And in so doing, you will be like your Savior. This is the attitude that should rule the church of Jesus Christ. Every person, every person, no matter what your office, whether you have an office, don't have an office, whether you're an adult, married adult, single adult, whether you're a child, this is... One of the primary distinctives of the Christian life. We don't exalt ourselves. We exalt Christ and we serve one another. We humble ourselves. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, just before he gets to the part about marriage, the very first verse in that section says, therefore, humble yourselves or serve one another. Rank yourself under one another. Serve. Husbands, do that as you lead. Wives, do that as you follow and as you lead your children. And so, husbands, remember here, you are not called to make your wife submit. That's not your job description. It's the Holy Spirit's job description. Rather, your job is to pursue the blessing of bringing leadership to your home by serving your wife and serving your children even as you lead. What can I do? How can I help? What decisions need to be made? Who needs to be disciplined? And wife, you are not called to fix your husband. Just forget about it. Not going to happen. Rather, your job is to pursue the joy of serving him and your children. Even as you lead your children, you're serving them. And children, you are not called to establish your own independence as long as you live in the home, but to pursue the peace that comes from submitting to and serving your parents. And single men and women, 
God has given you extraordinary freedom right now in your life if you're single. And it may not last very long. Don't relax and take your ease. Get busy. You want to find a mate? You run as hard after God as you can possibly run. And once in a while, look over your shoulder to see if anybody's running beside you. If there is, marry her. In congregation, you know where we are right now as a church, getting ready to plant a new church, sending 50 people away, transitioning to one service, establishing new elders and deacons pretty quick here, new leadership, new servants, new times. We'll be able to announce that in a week or so. Lots changing around here. The essential things are all staying the same. The times and leaders and some people, lots going to change. You know what's going to hold us together? It's not going to be helpful if we're all asserting our opinion about how things should be done. And I don't say that by way of correction. We don't, we don't have a lot of that going on right now. I don't know that we have any of it going on right now. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. But you know what will keep us together? If everybody seeks to serve everyone else, how can I help? Where can you place me? What can I do? And you know, when we all have that mentality, we're just going to be tripping over each other trying to serve. And you'll probably be tempted to get mad at each other while you're tripping over each other to serve each other. But that's just the nature of the sinful heart. And we always come back to confession, right? But I digress. Beloved, this is not meant to come across as heavy or burdensome. And I say that not just from me, from this servant, but from Jesus as well. Watch this, verse 17. He says to his disciples, If you know these things, you are, what's the next word? Blessed if you do them. Now, I know that there are folks who want to take the literal sense of this verse or word and say it means happy. Happy are you. And there's a, there's a certain sense in which that's true. But listen. I think John, who is a Jew, is using covenantal language here. In other words, you remember the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, where God said, if you obey me, I will bless you as you come in. I will bless you as you go out. I will bless your wombs. I will bless your herds. I will bless your flocks. I will bless your children. There will be blessing poured out on you that you can never imagine. That's the blessing. Blessed. Blessed are you if you do them. And you know what? You can get all wrapped up in your own emotions and, and become morbidly introspective and try to figure out your motive every time you bend down to tie your shoe and whatever. Look, you're going to drive yourself crazy. Obey. Serve. Love. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Or as Jesus is quoted in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So give, serve. I guess Paul probably said it better than any, any of us could ever say it when he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Philippians 2, which I read earlier but bears repeating. Here it is. Have this attitude in yourselves, 
which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Emptied himself, humbled himself. You know what, if, if we're going to be a, a church body, if, if yours is going to be a family, or if your life is going to be a life that truly gives glory to God, it will require daily emptying of self. A daily humbling of self. A daily denial of self. And that's going to be hard on a lot of occasions because we live in the selfie generation where everything is about self and exalting self. But that's not the way of the cross That's not the way of discipleship. That's not the way of following Jesus. Show me a marriage that's having significant difficulty and I'll show you two people who are not following Jesus' command. They're not ranking themselves under. They're trying to exalt self. They're trying to get their own way. They're wanting the other person or people in the household to serve them. And it never works well. It never goes well. God's way is always the best way. And beloved, this is so important for us to learn. And again, the message is simple. And here it is one more time. Being a follower of Jesus Christ means not only believing what he says, but also serving as he serves. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. And not just your theological grace that we read about, but the example of of your humility in Jesus Christ, where he humbled himself, emptied himself. He didn't stop being God ever in his existence, but he laid aside his privileges and his rights for the purpose of serving us. And then has called us to lay aside our perceived rights so that we can serve others. Father, make us a people who truly follow the Lord Jesus in this regard so that we will be blessed not only in the hearing of it but in the doing of it for Jesus' sake. For it's in his name we pray.